welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris. I'm joined by Joe Boot, and we're also very pleased to have a special guest with us, uh, Dan Ogden. Uh, Dan is uh, Ezra Institute Fellow for International Law, Comparative Politics, and International Relations. Uh, he's also a lecturer at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and uh, there at uh, Baylor, he teaches various courses on international law, international relations, uh, comparative politics, as well as international trade. Uh, this is uh, this is Dan's first uh, appearance on the podcast. We're uh, we're very pleased to uh, to have you with us, and uh, I just uh, just want to make make sure that everyone knows up front that we're uh, we're going to be. Uh, pushing Dan here on some of the main themes uh, that the Ezra Institute emphasizes, and uh, it should be uh, should be known that uh, these are going to be Dan's personal views, uh, not necessarily those of Baylor University. So with, uh, with that out of the way, I'll remind you quickly that we have two Canadian Mission of God conferences coming up. We've been talking about these for some time. And uh, they are actually happening. Uh, the uh, the Windsor Conference, Windsor, Ontario, is happening this coming Saturday, uh, and the uh, conference in Calgary happening the uh, the week before or week after. Forgive me. That's uh, December second and then December 9th. Two Saturdays. Uh, EzraInstitute.com is the place where you can get to get tickets and register for those events. But with that. Out of the way, we're going to dive right into this conversation. So, Dan, uh, welcome to the show. It's uh, it's a delight to uh, to have Thank you, you with us. Great, great to be here, Brian and Joe. Thanks. So, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one uh, who's had this experience. Uh, I'm familiar. I am familiar with the term international law. I am familiar with both of the words in that term. But uh, <laughs> once you uh, once you sort of ask me to get down and into any further detail, I, I kind of stall out. So to, to begin with, um, I thought I would just kind of bring some uh, some of the received assumptions that uh, that I have about this area and you can uh, you can correct and clarify uh, so that we can uh, we can have a more meaningful discussion going forward. Sure. Um, happy to do it's, uh, appreciate it. Uh, so it's uh, it's my understanding that uh, we're, we're talking about uh, international law. Uh, um, this is this. It's actually a uh, a system that that operates largely on a consent basis. Um, there are there are treaties, there are agreements, and there are obviously terms in those agreements. Especially when you're talking with um, trade or supply chain issues, things like that. Um, but it's not. Uh, or maybe you can uh, you can tell me is there it's it seems like it would be difficult and complicated and uh, and really kind of pretty high stakes if we were to enforce uh, much of what we uh, what we assume is called international law. Can you uh, can you talk about uh, about that? Whether I'm on the right track there or where where I'm missing something. No, Ryan, you're absolutely on the right track. One of the questions that I posed to my class at the very beginning, and I think for any class on international law, and I, I teach it in a political science department, so I teach it for more from a political science view than it would be 
in a law school. But nevertheless, one of the questions is international law actually law? And mm-hmm. the answer, and <laughs> it's yes and no. Like many things in life, it's it's both. Uh, when I say it's not law, is what I really mean it's different than your total law. And one of the examples I use in my class is, you know, if you're driving down the street in Waco and you get a speeding ticket, you get a haul before the municipal court, you basically are subject to that court's jurisdiction. There's nothing you can do about it. You can plead not guilty, of course. But, you know, that and and so law in as we normally think of, in particularly the domestic context, has a verticality to it in terms of enforcement. When it comes to international law, there, it's horizontal in nature. There is no supranational authority. I think right right off the bat, maybe that's one of the things we need to clarify at the beginning. We look at this term international. Quite often, mm-hmm. when people talk about international, in a in a I guess from the progressive from that perspective, they're really talking about supranational. So international. We just break down the words very simple. Inter means between national, between nations. And that implies right there that since it's between nations, that nations basically give their consent to what's going on. Supranational would mean above nations. Okay, so we don't have a supranational authority that can enforce international law. And so the, and the enforcement is all based upon nation's consent. And Okay, so in any event, this... The, the notion of international law is actually a product of state interest rather than a constraint. And there's many historic mm. examples that can be cited that illustrates this. So, yes, international law is built upon the consent of nations, and uh, there isn't any supranational authority that, that, that enforces international agreements, et cetera. And so, Ryan, your, your suspicions about as you mentioned, are are absolutely correct. That is that is, and and it kind of reminds me of a Churchill statement about a mystery wrapped a puzzle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, something like right. that. Uh, it's it's international law is very murky, and but in any event, it is there. And the fact that there are treaties, are agreements, we we call them law, but it's certainly unlike any domestic legal system or legal issue. Right, so it's uh, it's not uh, not a positive body of law, uh, in the same way that uh, so you mentioned getting a traffic ticket, uh, where you would have to yeah, operate it, within it is a, a positive realm. body. Yeah, it's a positive body of law, but it's a different type of law. Let's put it that's okay. probably the best way to put. It. Okay, sure. Uh, fair enough. Um, so I guess what uh, to to persist along that track. When uh, when we're talking about, I guess, sort of the the health of the uh, the global system, uh, what uh, what are the major factors that uh, that we would point to or that we would sort of look at in assessing you know, whether, on a global scale, uh, international relations are are going well, are going poorly? Uh, what are the uh, yeah? How how would how do how are those assessed? Well, that's a great question. Uh, obviously, um, the one's perspective, uh, if, if you're Ukrainian, they're not going very well. Mm. Um, and if you're someone who's being held hostage by Hamas, they're not going very well. Um, but I think, I think 
one of the things to understand the international relations is to think about it as an international system. Um, there is a famous international relations scholar named Kenneth Waltz who actually came up, well, he didn't necessarily come up with this notion, but it really kind of is based upon the traditional British foreign policy notion of the balance of power. And what he did, he kind of reframed this in terms of these terms that we hear today uh, as to um, uh, as to polarity and the notion that during the Cold War, for example, we had a bipolar world, in other words, United States and the Soviet Union were the two major powers. Uh, and today, since the end of the Cold War, we've been living arguably in unipolar world, with, well, certainly right after the Cold War ended, when the Soviet Union fell, the United States is the world's only superpower, in spite of the fact that a former Secretary of State, the late Madeleine Albright, decried that situation. Uh, if I would have decried it, if the Soviet Union had been the world's only superpower, but as an American, I kind of enjoyed it when the United States was the world's only superpower. Mm. Um, but today we may be moving towards, a again, a bipolar world, depending upon where we assess China. Now, in the 19th century, um, particularly after the defeat of Napoleon and the Congress of Vienna, we had very much a multipolar world. You had the five nations of, of Great Britain, France, Austria, Prussia, which of course became Germany and then Russia. And so therefore, uh, one of the things the British always tried to do in the foreign policy was to take the side of the, kind of the weaker state and, that, and, and they'd alternate. And so what Waltz really said is the way to analyze international relations is to look at it at a system rather level. Rather than just looking at individual states, you look actually at the system level. So scholars will differ upon whether a multipolar world, a bipolar world, a unipolar world is the most stable. Uh, certainly, um, one, one, you know, in the bipolar world, we of course, we had uh, proxy wars, you could say, between this U.S. and Soviet Union. Mm. But we also had there weren't any major wars, and and in a unipolar world, if the the power who's called the hegemon, if if they have the willingness to kind of enforce things, they can maybe keep the peace. But anyway, there's there's a lot of debate as to which one is more healthy, but or which one's more stable. I guess when we talk about the health of the international system, we could say that there are peaceful relations between countries. Uh, and uh, things of that nature. But in any event, that's that's kind of one way to assess it is what is what is the nature of the international system in terms of this concept of polarity. Right. Okay. Dan, I really appreciate you uh, bringing some uh, some clarity to us uh, us lay folk here. Um, <clears throat> having having established that to that basis or that foundation, uh, our our emphasis at uh, at the Ezra Institute, the the drum that we never get tired of beating, is that there there is a way to think Christianly about everything, every uh, every area, every sphere of life. Yes. Uh, and uh, the obvious uh, uh, flip side of that is that uh, there is there is a non Christian way uh, to think about and to approach everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'll uh, I'll get Joe to uh, to ask sort of in more detail about some of some of these in just a minute. But I guess what are uh, in your in your experience uh, in your practice in your teaching uh, where where do you see these these worldview differences between Christian and non Christian thinking 
uh, where, you, where do you see them applied and really sort of consequential uh, in, in the area of, uh, of international law? Well, I think there's a there's a couple very briefly. I know we're limited time. There's a couple of concepts that, in general, apply to government because we know Romans 13 really lays out the basis of God as the one who's authority. Um, mm. But there are a couple of concepts I think are important that really apply to international. One is this notion of of the rule of law, and there's a term that's quite often used is rex lex or lex res. So there's is the king the law is the law the king. Right. And this really has a great deal of applicability to, to international relations, international law. So historically, um, if you go back and you look at, you know, the BC times, you look at the Babylonian Empire, the Roman Empire, uh, the the successor to Alexander the Great, because he really was just a military ruler, didn't really rule in a, in a governmental sense. Look at the the Syrian, the Egyptian. They all had uh, Persian Empire, all the rulers all consider themselves to be divine, to be gods. And therefore, their word is law. In fact, uh, one of my favorite movies, 300, uh, when uh, Darius comes up to the Greeks, they're there, you know, 300 Greeks. And he says, how, how dare you oppose me, your God? And so even if these rulers didn't actually believe they were gods, at least they tried to portray them. And, and as a result, a couple of things happened. First of all, they had within their countries, they had very much, uh, they're very much of whatever they said went. And then the other thing is that in their relations with other states, they consider the all to be subservient. In fact, the Chinese empire was known as a tributary system. The Chinese emperor uh, was considered to be the son of heaven, uh, basically a god. And and all nations around them subservient. We we know uh, you know the Assyrian Empire, and it's interesting, of course, also during this time period, there was one country in the world in which Rex was not Lex, rather Lex was Rex, and that was Israel, mm-hmm. in, in the biblical uh, kingdom of Israel. And of course, when Israeli kings actually did become a law unto themselves, disaster followed, and ultimately, uh, God's judgment meant uh, Israel was subservient to Assyria, and then Judah was subservient to Babylon. Of course, we know how that ended. Well, what happened then uh, during the Middle Ages, um, without getting too much into history, but of course, the Roman Catholic Church basically in Europe kind of was the glue that kept things together. But we had a weird thing there develop uh, in that uh, we had kings, uh, but these kings in Christendom largely didn't they didn't consider us to be divine, rather they were God's region. And so you had some weird relationship between nations in which, for example, the King of England was also the vassal of the French because King England was also the Duke of Normandy, the Duke of Aquitaine. So he owed fealty to the France as, as those territories within France, but then in England, you know, he was actually, so you, you had international relations during this period was kind of weird. Well, of course, then we had the Reformation, and, and since we're all Reformation people, that is such a huge event. And we had the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648, and then we have this thing called the Peace of Westphalia. And that's really developed what we have today in terms of an international system. And the mm-hmm. key notion that developed, and, th- and this wasn't a notion that was created by a bunch of academics sitting around in a cloistered room, it just kind of happened over time, but there was this notion of what's called the sovereign equality of nation states. What this means is nation states are sovereign, 
which means that within their sphere, uh, they are they they have the authority. And uh, I, I know that Joe had, had wanted to talk about sphere sovereignty. Of course, our our father Abraham Kuyper's notion, and this very much falls within the notion of sphere sovereignty. Uh, it, when you look at international nations of sovereign within their own sphere, but also this notion of equality of nation states, and that rather than nation states having vertical relationships, where in the ancient world you'd have a ruler, for example, the Babylonian Empire, Persian Empire, consider themselves to be a god, therefore usurping God's rightful place as the ruler of nations. Therefore, other nations were vertically related. Now, after the Peace of Westphalia, we have this notion of the sovereign equality in nation states where nations are equal to each other. And this really is the foundation for international law today. It's really based upon the notion of sovereign equality of, of nation states. And we have a, uh, you know, we're, we're so very much uh, in, uh, indebted to the Dutch. You know, we have great theologians like uh, Van Til, uh, and Kuiper. We also had a Dutch Calvinist named Hugo Grotius, which mm. is the father of international right. law. And his his um, uh, his notion was that, yes, states are equal with each other. So when we think about this then from a biblical perspective, uh, you know, is there some place in the in scripture where it says sovereign equality nation states? No, there's not. But foundationally, this notion really reflects a biblical and a Christian worldview in that nation states are not related to each other vertically, rather related in a horizontal relationship since God is the ruler of nations. And that's that's very much established. And therefore, nations do not have a right to lord over other nations. Now, you know, we have, of course, changes of territory. There, there's a lot of things we could look at what about the American Revolution, what about the British Empire, et cetera, et cetera. But certainly the fundamental nature of international relations today and of international law is based upon this notion of the sovereign equality nation states. And that's really the foundation. And so when you hear people like one of my favorite commentators, Gordon Chang, talks a lot about the Westphalian international system, the rules-based order, that's what they're referring to is this notion of the sovereign equality of nation states. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me, Dan. You've uh, you preempted uh, one of my uh, one of my next questions about uh, the scriptural basis for international law. So I appreciate that. Um, can uh, you you've mentioned uh, in uh, in response or in passing uh, the uh, you know the situation in Ukraine, Russia, the situation between Israel and Gaza, uh, and. Don't I don't know, don't worry too much. Joe always wants to talk about sphere sovereignty, so it's uh, it. Oh, I'm more, I'm more than happy to talk about it as well. And and as I say, if you take the the notion of sphere sovereignty and apply it to the international relations in our system, mm -hmm. which to my knowledge Kuiper did not, but I think he would agree the notion of nation states being sovereign within their own sphere is really an extension of that sphere of sovereignty with God being sovereign overall. So whether you're talking about within the country, you know, the, the sovereignty of the government, of church, of family, of business, the, the whole notion of sphere of sovereignty, if you take that and extend it to the international system, then you're really talking about the sovereignty of, uh, of, of nation states within their own realm and not interfering with 
nation states uh, of other nation states in terms of their own internal affairs. Right, right. I want to uh, I want to turn it over to Joe uh, because Joe's uh, Joe's got the uh, the background in this uh, this discussion, this question of sphere sovereignty, and uh, so Joe, I'll ask you to uh, I guess dig down or uh, work with Dan to. Uh, to, to work out the uh, the application of of this uh, this doctrine in the realm of international law yeah I think Dan has covered off um, very well there actually the the implications and um, uh, I, I I think when um, Dan was recently lecturing actually last year at one of mm-hmm. our programs um, he drew out uh, the significance of this and I think it's important that that the principle of sphere sovereignty does apply here uh, that um nation states um need to for, for nations to be nation states and to enjoy their own sphere sovereignty um this whole idea of a supranational uh kind of body that could force nations in this way or that would be a would be a violation of sphere sovereignty and i think um i'd be interested to hear what dan uh, would would say actually about because uh, you know in the context Ryan of what you've asked about well how how do we think about these international relations from this distinctly mm-hmm. Christian standpoint um, to get Dan's take on the sort of Marxian globalism that's really been emphasised uh, in recent years uh, even in with the with the current president in the White House you've got very strong sort of globalist overtones into the way they they think and the kind of policies they pursue and then. So comment comment on that, Dan, if you would, and then related to that, um, uh, in terms of again violations of this principle of sphere sovereignty, where should we stand when we sort of listen to and hear Western nations in particular because they've got more wealth, they're part of the G seven or whatever it may be, or the G twenty, the bigger economies. Um, how oftentimes we're seeing now under this sort of globalist regime. Um, attempts to sort of force um, smaller, weaker countries, press gang them into things like abortion uh, or, or what, you know, what are called, you know, these alleged um, uh, maternal health um, and also the the progressive LGBTQ2 plus la-di-dar alphabet soup being imposed upon um, uh, other countries as well, and often economic sanctions then being applied. So, you know, the the whole idea of the validity, t- to my mind, of international law beginning to break down there, because if it's opt in, because we agree with a given principle that's being propagated in an international way uh, to build good relations with other countries, um, how should we think about that when Western powers are trying to use their money, influence, power, to force um, and press smaller nations into going along with um, their their agenda, and then I've got a follow up question to that. Well, Joe, just we could also add climate alarmism to the yes. well. Yes. Of course, <laughs> yeah, that should yes. have been in there, front and center. Okay, well, me, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, let me go back to your first question. So, uh, a few uh, about a year and a half ago, I wrote an article about the war in Ukraine. I talked about nature of the international system. I also talked about what U.S. foreign policy should be in response. And I'm going to kind of borrow from Churchill's phrase, or not Churchill, I'm sorry, Shakespeare's phrase, and neither a creditor nor a debtor be. And I would say neither an isolationist nor a globalist be. Now, isolationism is basically the idea we should just kind of cut ourselves off from the world, 
basically just focus on our internal issues as though we can't multitask and just kind of leave the rest of the world alone. And, and that really is a recipe for suicide. But the other extreme is globalism. And as I said in this article, I think Barack Obama is the best example of this. Globalism, and by the way, globalism is not globalization. Those two terms get mixed up all the time. Right. Globalization is an economic and technological phenomenon, okay? Globalism is a political ideology. And, and in, in part, it's kind of a response in part to globalization, but certainly it's been around. It's been around since the Tower of Babel. Uh, the Tower of Babel is a globalist proposition that we're going to have one world government. And so you'll hear different terms like global governance. You'll hear, and, and then, but there's a lot of globalists who actually call for it. They say, well, our problems are too big. We have to have a world government. And of course, this kind of leads into your second point, Joe, about one of the reasons we need some type of supranational authority is so that we can force nations, uh, for example, those in Africa, which are have completely different laws about, uh, you know, regarding sexuality, force them into this standard, as well as, you know, the whole green climate, you know, stuff that's out there. And that really does violate the basic principles of international law, because you really are, and it violates spirit sovereignty. It violates the whole notion of the sovereign equality of nation states. How can how can nation states be be equal and sovereign if they're being told what their laws have to be against their consent? And of course, this is very much in line with the whole Marxist philosophy. In fact, I just just today, uh, I'm going to pull take a look at my phone in the Wall Street Journal. It talks about one of their lead articles. Uh, it talks about uh, the young people and the the whole uh, younger generation approach to Hamas and Israel. And it says they happen to see the world as the oppressors and the oppressed. Well, that is straight out of Marx. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of my favorite uh, commentators, Mark Levin, who Joe, I know you know as well, know of uh, Mark, he, he talks about this all the time. We hear these terms oppressed and oppressors. It's very much of a Marxist philosophy. And Marxism itself is a globalist philosophy. Mm -hmm. If you look at what Marx wrote about, the idea of the state, whether in a way, of course, it's just the opposite in Marxist regimes. States get stronger. And this, of course, is one of the ironies of Marxism. We have to make the state stronger so we can eventually get rid of the state. It just makes no sense. And if you look at all the great tyrants of the 20th century, whether you're talking about Stalin, whether you're talking about Hitler, and then today with Xi Jinping, and I would also put Putin in this boat, they're all globalists. Now, they all want to basically have their ideology, their rule be uh, uh, be you know, the governing order in the world. And Xi Jinping talks about this all the time. He rejects what he says is the Western notion. So he rejects the notion of the sovereign equality nation states. And I think Putin does as well. And so you're, you're dead on, Joe, when, when you have all these, these trying to force these smaller states to do things against their will, you are totally going against not only the nature, nature of our international system that's been in place now for about 400 years, but even more importantly, you're going against biblical principles. Right. Dan, what is it that um, makes that kind of, uh, again, very helpful that you made the, the, that proper distinction between globalism as ideology and, and um, the phenomenon of globalization. When you look back at the... Um, uh, the 19th and the 20th century in the West, you, you've got thinkers like the German thinker Immanuel Kant, 
And then you had the British intellectual Bertrand Russell. Mm -hmm. And you look at almost all of these people and they were globalists. I mean, they, 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 Kant was all about the whole idea of a, of a, of the inevitability of a, um, an international government. And this was the sort of direction of history. This was the direction of reason, reason and rationality would always lead us, um, in the ultimately in the direction of, of a world government, which of course, in some respects makes a nonsense of the whole discipline of international law, because as you said, you know, it's internations, uh, you, you really would be, you'd be able to dispense with international relations because you'd have one supra national government. What, why, what has made this idea so popular? Because from a Christian standpoint, sphere sovereignty is important because um, whether it's the family or the church or uh, the lesser magistrate, whatever it may be, the different spheres that God has established, the reason it's so important is that it liberates those spheres to obey God, even if another sphere is walking in disobedience. Um, the, the other spheres are liberated to obey God, hence, you know, smaller countries free to obey God, serve him, commit to the lordship of Christ or God's authority, and then maybe uh, have treaties or mutual defense with other uh, uh, Christian nations. Why, why the popularity, in your view, of this kind of approach to, to, um, to, uh, to, to the world state, to a supranational government so popular with intellectuals? Well, I wish uh, rather than Russell and Kant, I think we would prefer Locke and Burke. Uh, and Edmund Burke in particular is, is one of our conservative heroes. But even John Locke, and I know, Joe, we probably have some, some slight difference regarding Locke. But Locke even said one of the reasons he defended the notion of sovereignties, he said that other states don't have the right to take away the natural rights of, of you know, that's the second state or that first state. And this really gets into the notion also of, of rights come from God and not the state. Mm -hmm. But in terms of why intellectuals have embraced this, I mean, there, there's, I, I really think at its very heart, and, and this is one of the, this is one of the bad aspects of the enlightenment is when reason began to be placed on on equality with revelation and then eventually surpassed it. If, if you worship reason and, and, and that's the highest form of, of authority, then you lose all morons and you end up with, mm -hmm. I mean, you end up with someone like a Hitler, someone like a Stalin, someone like a, a Mao, someone like a Xi Jinping, because rather than having a foundation where, where, where God is the ruler of nations. And it really goes back to this notion of, I mean, Xi Jinping, for example, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't believe he's a God, but he acts like it. I mean, if you look at his whole mm -hmm. approach, and so I think when, when, when you elevate reason to be the authority, this is what happens. Now, why that's happened, I mean, that's a long discussion, but I, I think ultimately mm -hmm. that's what's happened. And uh, when, when you get rid of your moorings based upon scripture based upon god and then you you elevate reason you end up with these notions and the thing about all these and it's so interesting if you look at these futuristic movies involved some type of one world government they're all dystopian in nature now quite often they're based upon some evil corporation kind of running everything but it doesn't matter i've yet to see a movie in which uh, uh, that shows a utopia of one world government 
they're dystopian by their very nature. And of course, that's the fallacy of Marxism, mm -hmm. is what it seeks to achieve is actually the opposite of what it results in. Thanks, Dan. That was, uh, that was incredibly thorough and uh, enlightening. Um, I just I want to uh, I want to pick up a couple of th on a couple of things that uh, that you mentioned in that response. Uh, you mentioned these uh, the the moorings of uh, of the current uh, global economy, global system uh, on scripture and on Christian principles uh, that uh, that this system has uh, has been in place in its uh, so something of its modern form for the past uh, several centuries. And I'm I'm just thinking as I'm uh, as I'm looking at you through the screen, I'm I'm here in uh, in Ontario in Canada, speaking to you down in Texas and to Joe over in uh, in the UK. Uh, I guess you know all we've got the free free exchange here of uh, of ideas and intellectual capital, uh, un uh, unhindered, unmonitored. Uh, I guess my my question in all of this is like, what is May Maybe it is being monitored. Maybe it is knows. being monitored. I'm, well, let's. Uh, all right, let's try to talk in code. Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, I, what? What? What's your take? What? Yeah. Hello, Trudeau. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. He's got his ear to the ear to There's the a keyhole. Wave from Ryan. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Ryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. sorry. I, I set myself up for that. I guess. Thanks a lot. Um, what What's your take on like, on the status of of Christian consensus in the present? Uh, present climate of international relations um not well, sure does that question yeah, make sense that's a great question no it does make sense um if you look at now when it comes to you know russia ukraine unfortunately many people of the my political persuasion for some reason they have been fooled into thinking or, or naive or been fooled or maybe willfully ignorant that somehow Putin is a defender of Christianity when nothing could be farther from the truth. So many mm. of them have actually taken the side of Russia and, and it's really out result of ignorance. Then when it comes to Israel and Hamas, uh, what, what we see here is many Christians falling for this, this notion of moral equivalence and there is no moral equivalence. And, and it's in, I, I've thought about this a lot. Why is it that when it comes to Nazi Germany, you know, there's, the left is everybody just condemns them. When it comes to Hamas, which is no different, in fact, these Islamist movements um, were actually started in part with the German Nazi Party. Uh, the whole Ba'ath Party in Syria and Iraq were was started by Nazis, a whole Muslim Brotherhood. The Grand Mufti of of Jerusalem, you know, admired Hitler, and mm -hmm. so. And then you see these demonstrations, you actually will see swastikas there. I mean, it's unbelievable. So I think I think today we have a lack of moral clarity. And among Christians, it, it's it's unfortunate is there. And and it's very easy as as Christians, we we're called to be compassionate, we're called to love, and of course, these are all absolutely parts of of, of the Christian faith and our and but I think what people do is they get confused about about what love truly is, what compassion is. We are we are also called not to 
uh, we're called out to to say evil is evil. And when we see evil, we have to take a stand with it. And so I think, unfortunately, many Christians uh, think sometimes with their hearts and not with their heads. And but it is it's a complicated issue. Um, and but as I think as Christians, we 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 always start out with Scripture. And, and that's what we use to judge everything, because uh, as Westminster Confession says, Scripture is the, you know, it's the infallible rule of practice for life. And we have to start there and we use that. And we th- so we think about these conflicts, but we also have to be clear headed and have clear thinking. And that that's that's often difficult to do, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Dan, um, in uh, in follow up to that, uh sort of getting concrete here as we sort of um begin to 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 conclude some of the uh some of the core questions here for this interview um when you were speaking i was thinking about uh the something we were actually discussing discussing last week on our podcast we were actually we actually dealt down with um a, uh, a a very famous interview with a with a kgb defector mm-hmm. to the united states who was talking about the project of basically uh, Marxist uh, and, and Leninist uh, demoralization um, and uh, uh, what he called um, the uh, um, cultural subversion, ideological subversion. So he said that the, the thing that the Soviets were concerned with much more than traditional ideas of espionage was to um, subvert in a variety of different ways, um, the the Christian consensus, and uh, that was sort of all around you in some respects. It wasn't hidden, um, and the goal was to strip, to eviscerate, um, to denude the West of its moral fiber, of its virtue, of its of its moral commitments. And um, it's interesting to me that um, after World War Two, as and you'll be more versed in this than I am, but I, I read a book a little while ago on the development of um, human rights law in Europe and how much of it was promoted and crafted and sort of recommended by the Soviets. And all the focus is, of course, on of these of human rights law. And we're actually grappling with this issue right now in Britain because the way it's been written, the courts won't even let us get rid of um, illegal um, uh, military-aged Muslim men from... Um, North Africa or whatever, who coming over illegally in dinghies, and the the, the the prime minister and the government can't get find a way to remove these people from the country because they're constantly blocked by treaties that they've signed by mm-hmm. the courts um, and by the European Court of Human Rights. And so now the discussion is: Does Britain need to leave the European Court of Human Rights just so that we can get illegals who we've got no idea of their background? We don't know. Uh, who they are, what their political sympathies are. Many of them are involved in gangs and trafficking. And, and uh, of course, there are many Islamists amongst them as well. That's just the illegal ones. That's just one example. The other example would be the all the identity politics, where everybody's a victim, everybody's demanding their human rights. And instead of God's law and human responsibility, every everything now is a litany. It's like a, a potpourri of, of rights um, that that uh, that people have, and that actually the Soviet Union itself was behind much of this European 
law, which is a kind of international law. What's your what's your take on that? On this, was there a project of demoralization in your view of of um, ideological subversion where international law was being used as part of that through bodies like the European Union and the UN? Yeah, there's no question. By the way, the, the one instance we have today of a supranational government is the European Union. And when when Brit, when Brexit occurred, uh, Brit, the European uh, Court of Human Rights that did not, they did not exit that. And of course, that's a total infringement upon British sovereignty. And if I was a British citizen, I'd want the UK out of that court as well. So, you know, Joe, it, again, like so many things, it starts out in the intellectual and it moves to the to the practical. So what happened uh, in Marxism is, of course, and of course, Marx thought Germany and the most advanced industrial countries would be the first ones to have Marxist revolution, but actually was the least advanced country in Russia. And so a lot of Marxists realized, you know, what what happened is Bismarck actually adopted some of Marx's uh, prescriptions, like social security, things of this nature. And so basically, in the you know after World War One, a lot of the Marxists in Europe said, "Well, the workers have been bought off." So now we we have to stress cultural issues, and Herbert Marcuse is one of the main prop, uh, protagonists of this or proponents of this notion. And and another book by Mark Levin, a great book called American Marxism, goes in a lot into detail. So the whole idea was the way that Marxism will advance now, it's not going to be on economic issues, it's going to be on cultural issues. And so that did lead, and of course, on cultural issues, the first thing they have to do is get rid of religion, and particularly Christianity, because it's a barrier to bring in about a Marxist revolution. And, and this absolutely was explicitly in the writings of Marxists. And this has continued to today. So what's happened then, of course, is that uh, these, these, uh, th this has found its way into, into uh, this whole notion of international human rights law, which really is not based upon international law. It's based upon this idea of supranational law. In other words, Nations, whether they agree to it or not, they have to have certain laws regarding you know, sexual orientation, regarding gender, regarding you know the oppressed peoples, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it really just places the notion of international law. And, and the other thing also that's very important, uh, I mentioned early on this notion of the rule of law is kind of one of the bulwarks of a free society where the law is king rather than the king being law. The other bulwark is and again, we're indebted to John Locke, at least in America, his notion of natural rights, which I have rephrased as creational rights, the idea that our rights come not from the state, but from God, from our creator. And the Declaration of Independence very specifically states this. And most of the framers of the signers of the Declaration actually believed in a creator, not necessarily all of them, but most of them actually believed this, that our rights do from God. And if our rights come from God, then the state has no right or ability to take them away. In fact, Locke himself said the whole reason for government is to protect these rights. And that explicitly is in the U.S. Declaration of Independence. The Soviet Union, on the other hand, people often talk about in this constitution and have fantastic rights. But these rights, of course, are never enforced. But furthermore, these rights were given by the state. So what the state giveth, the state can taketh away. And so when we see now what you're talking about, Joe, is this attempt 
to take this notion of human rights and put it into the whole world as a binding, as something that's required. The whole notion of these human rights are not based upon rights that God has given us. It's based upon the rights of the state or particular ideologies such as Marxism have generated. And uh, this, this is an extremely dangerous proposition. And it is something that, that there's no question that it is, is one of the big issues we face today when it comes to the sovereignty of nation states. But again, for those people who are globalists, they believe we need to reduce the sovereignty of nation states. I mean, it all fits together what they want to do. We need to get rid of the whole idea of nation state sovereignty because it results in oppression. And therefore, we have to create some type of world order in which nation states are no longer sovereign so they can no longer oppress the oppressed peoples. Well, we've just experienced in Canada something of what you're talking about because we had these lovely, uh, uh, this uh, so-called Charter of Rights and Freedoms with our fundamental mm -hmm. liberties laid out. And as soon as the government decided, well, those don't apply um, uh, when the government uh, decides you can't have them. Uh, so, you know, so the, you know, your, our Section 1 liberties in the Canadian Charter and Ryan will correct me if I'm muddling this up, but I think it's the Section 1 freedoms, uh, are then caveated yeah. by Section 2. Um, basically, that, um, yes, these are your freedoms when the government deems it appropriate. But if there's a time when the government deems it not appropriate because of whatever emergency it thinks there is, unlike the US Constitution, there's brackets around our fundamental freedoms. And we experienced in Canada um, uh, very vividly uh, in the last few years during the COVID era, how meaningless those um, those rights and freedoms uh, based on sort of human rights, because there was the British North America Act in Canada, and then there, it was felt in the 1980s that, oh, well, no, Canada needs a Scandinavian-style mm. uh, charter of rights and freedoms, a Nordic sort of style uh, approach. And um, we just discovered that it's pretty much mm -hmm. a worthless piece of paper. Uh, the government giveth and then the government taketh away, Absolutely. which wasn't seen to the same degree in the United States, of course, at all. And um, even, in, of course, in the United Kingdom, where there's an unwritten constitution, the courts were ruling in favor of the church, not so in Canada. Yeah, there, there's, that, that is, you know, if, there, if there's one thing that distinguishes the American polity, it is that our rights come from God and not from the state. And the Constitution, of course, particularly the Bill of Rights, is basically an affirmation of that. It's, 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 in other words, the Bill of Rights and under the U.S. Constitution, the, the rights of free exercise of religion, freedom of speech, they aren't created by the Constitution. Rather, the Constitution is affirmed that these rights are already there. In fact, there's a, there's a, a Ninth Amendment to the U.S. Bill of Rights, which is hardly ever discussed, but it says, these aren't the only rights that exist. There's other rights out there. And even in the Declaration of Independence, quite interestingly, it says among these rights are life, liberty, pursuit, and happiness. So there's no question that that, that is, to, to me, if there's one important principle here, is that our rights come from God and not the state. Yeah. One uh, um, sort of last question for me before uh, uh, Ryan takes it back here, uh, Dan. Um, as we think about uh, the Christian view, 
the the Christian idea of liberty, the freedom of of, of nation states, the true nature of international law. Um, we're in a time where um, you talked about the bipolar world, the multipolar world, the, the various different views that that that, that people have. Um, the, uh, the 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 scriptures. Um, seem to suggest in terms of international relations that um, we can make um, international treaties and agreements with believers, mm-hmm. but we should be very, very careful about signing up to uh, uh, treaties with unbelievers. Um, uh, uh, so in the context of uh, where we are today, an increasingly secular sort of neo-pagan environment in much of the West, it's... it's um, it's a bit difficult to speak in the same way that we might have done even 60 years ago about Christian nations. But the basic idea of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization of NATO was was fundamentally um, uh, nations that shared the same values, the same convictions, broadly those that were committed to a Christian view of the world, a Christian view of reality, a Christian view of the rule of law, um, developed the North Atlantic treaty organization um, so that an attack on one was an attack on all. Um, over time, we've seen that treaty, the, the I should say the members, the signatories to that treaty sort of rapidly expanding. Um, do you see a, a problem from an international point of view? How should Christians who, let's say we, we, we see revival in the United States and uh, reformation, God willing, at some point it's going to happen. How soon? I don't know. But uh, or in Britain or or uh, in Canada, and uh, we're thinking through. Of course, we have to think it through in the immediate. But from a Christian standpoint, um, how free are we to 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 have mutual defense agreements with um, non-believing nations or nations that are that 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 are opposed to or or have a completely different view of the world what's what what should be our take on that yeah that's that's a good question um i i think you know we have to be careful when we look at biblical precepts and concepts not how can i phrase this i think the more you go into detail about things the the farther away you get from basic principles in terms of how they would apply in a biblical sense so i would not argue that the United States, for example, should only have treaties with other nations that are are, are predominantly Christian in nature. But I, I think it comes down to, you know, even though a nation may not be Christian, if they embrace concepts that are fundamentally concepts that come from Scripture in the first place, and you mentioned about the shared values, and, and I think, you know, I think that has a lot to do with it. So, for example, should the United States have a treaty of commerce and friendship with with Iran? Absolutely not. Uh, both for I think more reasons as well as for just practical strategic reasons. Um, I, I think these things you have to look at them on a case by case basis. And and that was you know again one of our intellectual heroes Edmund Burke, great philosopher. One of the things he argued for international relations was what's called prudence. And prudence means essentially you look at each individual situation evaluated on its own terms. And so there may be situations, for example, the United States had these nuclear arms agreements, the Soviet Union. 
Now, was that something we shouldn't have done? I think, I think to a certain extent that helped eventually bring about the downfall of the Soviet Union. And even if you look at the Old Testament, sometimes Israel would have certain types of relationship other nations for strategic reasons. They would have allies. And so it, I, I think we have to be careful not to, to have some real rigid formula in which we are going to say, well, we should never do this or that. I mean, yes, we certainly don't want to ally ourselves with nations that uh, are, are completely anti-biblical uh, in nature. But at the same time, I think that we have to be very prudent in the pursuit of foreign policy. So in regards to NATO, I think NATO is still a worthwhile institution. Um, uh, there, there certainly uh, are a lot of diverse opinions within NATO, and, and we see a lot of countries that are really moving down different directions that we would like to see happen. But that doesn't mean I don't think that we shouldn't have some type of alliance. But I, again, I think prudence and looking at each individual situation is really what we and and Joe, you're asking, can we get dragged in foreign wars unnecessarily? Well, that that's part of prudence, um, and and that's one thing that you know when George Washington gave his farewell address, he said, "Well, beware of entangling alliances." Now, Washington wasn't arguing for some ethical reason that we shouldn't have alliances, because after all, the United States had alliances with France and Spain, without which we wouldn't have won the Revolutionary War. But what Washington was concerned about, and actually what Great Britain in his history was concerned about, was getting an alliance that would require us to get into some conflict between two nations. So I think we do have to be careful uh, to not allow that to occur. And of course, NATO is a defensive alliance. NATO, there is no requirement by NATO to engage in troops. So, so you know, if, 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 if a NATO country were to attack another non-NATO country, that doesn't obligate the United States or any other NATO member to get involved. It's purely a, a alliance. And then, of course, Joe, you mentioned about the special relationship with Britain and America. It, it wasn't always so special for a while, but it is now. <laughs> And, and again, I think the United States, yeah, and by the way, I, I love the history of the British uh, monarchs prior to King George III. Henry V is one of my heroes, and Elizabeth I, Elizabeth the Great, really is a very heroic figure. But in any event, I think the, the special relationship between Britain and the United States, I think that's it's really based upon this notion, uh, and we go back to Magna Carta. The fact that King John couldn't just do what he wanted mm -hmm. and it's really based upon the notion of Lex is Rex rather than Rex Lex. And, and if you want to really get down to the nub of the matter, I think when you look at countries, is 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 the king the law is the law of the king. I think that really tells you a lot. Dan, thanks uh, thanks so much for walking through that. Uh, we've uh, we've covered a lot of ground. I'm uh, I'm very grateful uh, for your time, and I don't want to take uh, take up too much more of it. Uh, but uh, as I said, we, we you've uh, you've taken us on on quite a tour. Uh, I, I came into this uh, professing my own ignorance, and for for those of our listeners who are anything like me, who want to uh, want to follow up. Uh, I get the question in all of this is just where where would you direct us? Uh, what to, what kind of resources would you recommend for getting uh, getting more of a uh, more of a handle on this? And uh, do do feel free to uh, recommend something of your own authorship if that's relevant too. Well, I 
I, I plan on writing some books on some of these matters. Haven't gotten around to it. Um, there, there are a lot of good works out there. I mean, I, I mentioned Mark Levin. Mark, Mark Levin is a tremendous thinker and there's a lot of people out there. You'll see everyone's writing a book these days. Mark Levin's books actually go very deep. And I'd say his book on American Marxism is really a great book because it really takes these notions of Marxism, puts them down in things that people can understand. But if you want to go deeper, I mean, I, Edmund Burke, read Reflections on a Revolution in France, mm -hmm. even though it's about the French Revolution. That book gives you principles you can apply to today. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, perhaps what I could do sometime, uh, Ryan, is put together a list of, of some books, some that are more heavy duty and some that are more just kind of easy for the lay person to understand um, and, and, and provide that to you. And maybe it could be posted on, on the website. That, uh, that sounds like a website. great resource. I really appreciate that. <clears throat> Joe is. Uh, Joe's yes, got Joe, I would like to do it. Joe. Yeah, Joe, senior note, I would love, love to do another show on this. Yeah, yeah, there's this. This is a subject that is so deep. You can't really plumb the depths of it. Mm -hmm. And so I'd be more than happy to do another one with you guys. It'd be great. Wonderful. Well, we'll definitely uh, we'll definitely uh, come back to this subject with you for sure, Dan. We, as Ryan says, we really appreciate right. your time. Great. Happy to do it. And uh, I just give everyone out there listening to plug for Ezra Institute. It's a fantastic organization. And uh, I just encourage everyone listening to, to avail yourself of the podcast. There's so many wonderful people, Andrew Salen, who of course is a mutual friends of ours. Andrew's terrific. And a lot, lot of other people that y'all have honored. Great. And uh, thank you, you guys. Thank you for, for having a viewpoint uh, particularly the worldview from a biblical a reformational perspective on these issues, because it is, it is something that's necessary. And as Christians, we are to be thinking people. We really are. And as the Bible, you know, the Lord quite often says, come, let us reason together. Reason is not something that Christians should shy away from. We don't worship reason. It's not our source of authority. But reason is something we, we seek to do. God is a God of reason. And, and thinking about things is one of the best things we could do as Christians. And I think Ezra is really contributing to, to that notion. I appreciate that very much, Dan. Thanks a lot. Joe Boot and Dan Ogden, appreciate you both being here. A podcast for Cultural Reformation, where we remind you every week that from him, and through him and to him, Jesus Christ, King of the nations, are all things. May God be glorified, and we look forward to being with you again next week. <laughs>